Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Well, Bay 17, Carriage Works, a Wednesday night, and it smells distinctly like people of the book in here. It must be Sydney Writers' Festival time. Welcome, everyone. It's so great to have you all here. My name's Michael Williams. I'm the editor of The Monthly, uh, and I'm never more excited than Nerd Christmas, which is what I call Sydney Writers' Festival. Uh, this is a room of very nerdy people, Shahan, who you can't see right now. Um, which is the, for the best, I assure you. Uh, this is Gadigal country of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Uh, we acknowledge country in part as an acknowledgement that the moral and legal implications of invasion remain unresolved to this day. I'm thrilled to be sitting here talking to such a distinguished guest. Uh, it's, uh, it's incredibly exciting. Uh, and not least because he is the author of the seminal manifesto, Where Shall I Poop? Uh, we won't be talking about that tonight at length unless it comes Why up not? in audience questions. Because I'm afraid. I'm afraid of the truths that you speak uh, when you're writing for children. But um, Shahan Karunatilaka is an extraordinary writer. He is the current a reigning champion of the tournament that is the Man Booker Prize, is the author of two novels and three children's books, Chinaman, The Legend of Pradeep Matthew, which was winner of the 2012 Commonwealth Book Prize, and The Seven Moons of Al Mali Almeida, which was the winner of the 2022 Booker Prize. He's written extensively on sport, music, and travel, and this is from his own uh, autobiographical note. He is a writer of punchlines, manifestos, and calls to action. Failed cricketer, failed rock star, failed vegan. Observer of people, <laughs> machines, and markets. Does not know how to use semicolons and unable to spell diarrhea without assistance. Please welcome Shahan Karunitalaka. Thank you very much. And I think the inevitable first question has to be, failed vegan, what was the first thing you fell off the wagon for? What, what meat took you over the edge? It's a kotturoti. I don't know if the, you need to translate. It was a kotturoti. It was a moment of weakness, 3 a.m. On a, on, on a Tuesday night, which I should have been in bed thinking of novels, but um, yeah. There's a lot of sympathy away. for that in this crowd. It's, um, yeah. oh. It seems to me appropriate to begin talking to you tonight on a point of kind of belief and ideology and the slippage between the way we live our lives and the things we believe in. Because uh, this extraordinary novel, The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida, is about many things. But one of the things it's about um, is how we might live and then what that might mean when we live no more. Um, what, was the, what was the initial engine for this book? What was the impetus? Well, if I'm being honest, the initial impetus was I was really tired of talking about cricket. And um, I had been doing that. So the first novel was about a forgotten cricket. And there's, there's, I mean, Chinaman's about a lot of things. Uh, cricket is one of them. But yeah, my audience was, uh, my fan base was middle-aged men who were obsessed with cricket. To extent, and, um, and which is fine. It's a great fan base. But uh, I was... I was on panels uh, with um, Saurav Ganguly in the belly of the beast in Calcutta, and he'd asked me, what's wrong with Sri Lankan cricket? Does Sangha and Mahela not get on? Uh, and <laughs> as if I was supposed to know. And, and, 
more and more cricket assignments kept coming my way. And also, you know, the Sri Lankan golden age of cricket was just about to dip. And so I thought what Sri Lanka needed, um, I've done the cricket book, was a good ghost story. And um, that's, that's where I started from. Uh, but I think when I was thinking about this was the last time I was in Sydney, about 10 years ago. Um, and around that time was the you know, the aftermath, the post-war period. So Sri Lanka's 30-year war ended in 2009. And uh, it was, I remember, quite a hopeful time, especially for my generation. We thought this war would never end, and there was a lot of optimism. Um, people were coming back. There was investment coming in. But the wounds didn't seem to be healing. There was a lot of squabbling over, especially the final phase of the war, how many civilians died and um, whose fault it was. And it was the battle of the documentaries. I was in Singapore at the time watching this squabbling, and I thought, well, it seems the living are creating narratives, uh, converging and diverging narratives, and they obviously haven't got a clue what happened. We should perhaps ask the dead. And that was really the impetus. What if we allowed the victims of Sri Lanka's many wars to speak? Um, so that's where I started from, but I wasn't brave enough to write about 2009. I mean, even still, it's quite a contentious to, um, to, a topic to address. And so I, I thought, okay, I can go back to many periods in our history, and uh, I remember 89 as being this perfect storm seems a very inadequate way to portray the fact that there were three, three conflicts happening at the same time. Um, the separatist war with the Tamil Tigers, um, the Marxist insurrection with the JVP and the Indian peacekeeping force had uh, boots on the ground. And I just thought it seemed a, a perfect place to set a ghost story, especially about a war photographer with, uh, who, was, who had many people who wanted to kill him. So that's where I began. I thought um, because I was writing about ancient history, I'd be safer because most of the antagonists and protagonists were dead and there was no one left to take offense. Um, a few people have still taken offense, but... Um, <laughs> Um, so that, that was, that's where it started from, really. It's an inspired choice after your problem with the cricket-loving crowd. If you write about ghosts, at least you're not going to face rebuttals. Not yet, though. Yeah. I was writing at 4 a.m. and suddenly a wind would sweep past my head and a door would slam and I'd wander, but, um, yeah. A whisper so in your ear. Mm. Uh, I'm really interested in that decision to look at modern Sri Lanka and and the contemporary conflict through the lens of the one before. I mean, essentially your version of the TV show MASH doing the Korean War while the Vietnam War was on. Was, that, was it intended to be allegorical or were you quite happy, if happy is the right word, to focus on that period in the 80s that you had such memories of? So the, the, I just thought I was writing a very straightforward ghost story and uh, I, the, the political details weren't really the the main motivation. Uh, and when you look at the, the genre conventions of a ghost story, I, I think the only, uh, uh, the only innovation, if you will, here is that the corpse is also the detective, I think. Uh, but other than that, um, you have, uh, yeah, you have a corpse, you have five or six uh, likely suspects. So this war photographer who sold, uh, sold his wares to the highest bidder and who was in with all sides, with the LTT, with the government, with the JVP, that was, it, con it conformed to those conventions of, yeah, so there's many people who wanted him dead. And that's really where I, I, I thought I was just, uh, it, was a, it was a place to set it. I wasn't trying to do a political commentary. It was supposed to be a straightforward crime thriller, but I think 
the ghost started talking to me. That was the problem. So he's chatting to the dead people, and they're pontificating about Sri Lankan politics and all of that. And so that's where all of this, and then he got mistaken for literature and got awarded a prize. <laughs> and, but uh, I, I was just trying to write a straightforward ghost story. It, are you a big reader of genre fiction? Is that Certainly, yeah, one of yeah. your appetites? Because it is, I mean, it, it is a book of extraordinary kind of power, and I think political power and historical power. But it is very funny, deeply satirical, I think, but also very humane. You know, it is at its heart. Um, what I wanted to make sure tonight was that we focused on Mali and the characters, because I think it's a book of great tenderness. Um, uh, Mali's based on a, a real historical figure initially, wasn't it? Well, I would say inspired by. Um, so one of the initial bits of research I did was I looked at all the unsolved murders of uh, 8990, of which there were plenty, but the most, uh, the most famous one was Richard de Soisa. Um, so Richard de Soisa was, uh, he was a journalist, um, a theater person, an activist, an actor, um, and rumored to be in with different radical groups, but yeah, he was, he was murdered and his body was found by, by a lake. Not the Beira Lake, I kind of fictionalized details. Um, but I remember being a teenager at that time and Richard de Soisa's death rocked Colombo because, you, I mean, we were, we were used to journalists and activists being killed, but it was usually a, a Sinhalese or Tamil journalist uh, outstation whose name we, we don't recall. But when Richard died, it was like suddenly they could come after anyone. Here was, um, you know, an English-speaking uh, Colombo middle-class guy who got, who got killed. So I began there, but um, I didn't want to write a biography of Richard because that's been done. And I, I, I thought, and also I think I've been writing this for so long. It took seven years. So Mali Almeida, he started from that point. But then I think when I realized he was a war photographer, which I don't believe Richard was, um, that's when the plot really opened up because this idea that he had these photographs that could end wars in his perhaps naive, idealistic view. Uh, and then also the idea that he was a gambler, that also came quite later. And, um, because I had to explain why was this guy who could live a comfortable Colombo existence going to these horrible places and photographing atrocities. And, that informed his worldview as well, that he, he didn't believe there was a cosmic plan and um, it was all random calculated risks. That's why he's flabbergasted in the opening scene to find out that there is life after death and there is a God, but they've gone for lunch for the last thousand years and um, <laughs> he has to op operate that. So um, Ma I think, so Mali Almeida's character was inspired by Richard, but I think he's very different. And even in his attitude, I think Richard was a much more, um, idealistic, passionate man, whereas um, Mali seems a bit more detached, a bit more um, aloof and um, not really taking any sides. So I think when you spend so much time with characters, they end up telling you who they are. So that, that's, that's where he started from. But I think Mali Almeida is, is his own man. I want to come back to some of those qualities of Mali in a moment, but let's take that first scene when he wakes up dead, because it's one of the kind of delicious early conceits of the book is that uh, the afterlife is like life, but worse. It's bureaucratic. They're accused. There's paperwork that needs to be done. There is chaos, and there are people in authority that you don't quite know whether you're better to listen to or to ignore. Yeah. Um, that seems to me to be a very singular vision of the afterlife. Where is it peculiarly Sri Lankan, do you think? 
I think I've sat in these offices across Southeast Asia, so um, I've applied for passports everywhere, and yeah, so I, I think maybe this one is particular to Sri Lanka, but I don't think the phenomenon is particular to Sri Lanka. Um, so this was the problem you have to solve. When you have a ghost narrating the story, you've got to figure out what do ghosts do, what, what space do they inhabit when they're not going boo and dressing up in sheets and rattling chains. <laughs> what do they do with their day and what do they think? And um, problem is you can't interview a ghost. Uh, I, I didn't want to do a seance. Um, that's the, I, I visited haunted houses, I watched horror movies, read the ghost stories, went to the religious texts. Um, philosophical texts, near-death experiences. So um, those reports always talk about the light and walking towards it, having a guide figure. So I borrowed a lot of these tropes. But um, this idea of this bureaucracy, it, uh, it took a while to, to come together, but it made sense to me that um, we have this, um, I mean, we comfort ourselves with this delusion that we, when we breathe our last and we open our eyes again, uh, that all will be revealed, that the universe will spread its secrets before us, God will tell us her name and all of that. But, it, I mean, this is comforting, but it made more sense in a Sri Lankan afterlife that you'd wake up and you have a piece of paper in your hand and you've got to get it stamped at that <laughs> desk there, and the guy's gone to lunch, and so then you've got to get your ears checked, but you need a form to do that. And that immediately had this absurdist uh, comic appeal to me as an opening scene. But also, it's... It, offered an explanation. I mean, this is, I haven't heard a plausible explanation why this beautiful paradise island, I mean, I've written travel brochures and it's true, this beautiful country seems to go from catastrophe to catastrophe. Um, you know, we blame our leaders, we blame foreign influences, but why not? The idea that it's just because there's all these spirits were flying around Sri Lanka waiting for their passport to be stamped to the afterlife and until they can get that done, they're wandering around whispering bad ideas in people's ears and getting them to act on it. It seemed a plausible explanation to me and, um, yeah. <laughs> it does seem audacious to blame the problems in your country on the dead, but, <laughs> you know, I, I think fair enough. Again, they're not going to complain. It does then give you this kind of entire world that you're setting up. It's a classic bit of world building where... Were you crippled by the need to explain this reality, to, to bring your readers along and say, these are the rules, this is what can happen, what can't happen? Mm. So I did extensive world building and there, there were about 25 rules for ghosts. In the end, I think, and this is the editing process, we um, down to the three main ones. And that's uh, first that you can only go, a ghost can only go where their corpse has been. Because otherwise, yeah, a ghost is going to take a trip to the Bahamas or, or the Maldives or something. But um, it made sense when you look at ghost folklore. They only seem to appear at their houses or at cemeteries. So, okay, so you can only go where your corpse has been. But also, uh, you can travel with the wind. And this is these strange winds that were blowing in my room when I was writing this. Um, but I think the main point was that you could go wherever your name was spoken. So with this murder mystery plot engine, that was a convenient device, because wherever someone said the word Mali Almeida, the name Mali Almeida, he could go there and that was a new suspect and a new subplot. Uh, but also, so I think it was a good way of getting the ghost across the... And also, I think with these... I mean, again, it's been mistaken for magical realism. Um, and I thought, uh, and again, whether it's fantasy or ghost story or magical realism, I'm not sure, but I think... What irritates me when reading these types of books is when they just make up the suddenly you find he can breathe fire or he can get invisible in the third act to get him out of a situation. So I had to set up those rules. 
But the name spoken thing, it also had an added meaning for me that you die a second death almost when, um, when the last person on earth speaks your name or remembers you, which is perhaps why ghosts don't seem to last more than three generations. So these were the three main rules. Uh, but then, yeah, you have a, cr a crow man who can uh, merge between the uh, both worlds, and then you have also dreamwalking, which comes a bit later, no spoilers. Um, so there, there were a few, but I think the main thing of the editing was getting, yeah, just making sure that you, you want it to be confusing at the beginning, and, but uh, you also want to make sure the reader is on board. I mean, like with Chinaman, I, within the first 50 pages, it explains what a bat is, what a ball is, what, and finally gets to what Duckworth Lewis means. Um, but the, I, I think you've got to be polite to your reader when you're taking them to these strange places. The other thing that the name being spoken conceit does is it does allow large sections of the book to read basically like a conventional crime novel. Think about, you know, forget the other genre conventions. It's there are police, there's uh, family and loved ones kind of trying to investigate Marley's death beyond Marley's own investigation. And it allows him to be a kind of spectator into that investigation. And the depiction of the police in particular is a, an excellent illustration of the kind of um, uh, the various societal forces uh, that make justice unlikely for Mali Almeida. Could you read us a brief passage about the police? We set that up beforehand, just to be clear. Uh, I was, nice was going to let that be very smooth, but yeah, I, I, you know. Smooth. Yeah, Draw until you said that, yeah. yeah. Sorry about that. Um, um, so, yeah, I, I'm going to read... Um, it is a book with uh, demons and talking animals and hungry ghosts, but I'm going to read you the bit which has none of that, which is the most realistic <laughs> bit, with, with the cops, who are perhaps more frightening than all of the ones that I mentioned. Um, and yet we'll talk about detectives and death squads and all of that, because, I mean, even though there's a lot of dark humor to it, I did research the anatomy of a death squad, and I think, look, it, they say it takes a a village to raise a child. It seems to take uh, a village to dispose of a body as well. And I, I, researching that ecosystem, it was, um, yeah, quite harrowing, but also I could see the dark humor in it. But anyway, let, let me read this bit. Um, the neighborhood was called Kompanya Vidya by the Sinhalese and Komanu Teru by the Tamils, both meaning company street. The British called it Slave Island. These names persist today and provide unsubtle clues to how natives and colonizers viewed one another. The back of the hotel, Leo, is an abandoned lot that serves as a rubbish dump for the neighborhood. The surrounding streets are crumbling buildings and slums. The crenellated rooftops are occupied by worried cats and bored bats. A body was here. Detective Kasim points to the dent in the garbage bags where the, with the splatters in red. Kotu and Balal nod. You thought it was a drop-off point? Sir, this building is a drop-off point, says Kotu. You didn't think there was too much blood? Uh, didn't think like that, sir. Detective Kasim shines a torch up the walls of the hotel. It looked like red and brown paint had been thrown down its side. You didn't notice those stains? Sir, uh, when collecting garbage, uh, no time to look at scenery. Keep, keep talking like that and see what happens. Uh, snaps ASP Ranchagoda. From today, you will give full paperwork. Balal and Kottu are silent. Kasim shines his torch around the rest of the dump. The night has been one of bad smells. 
a breeze whizzes past him and makes him shiver. Kasim turns to Kuttu. So he was thrown from one of those balconies. Not by us, right? <laughs> Balal nods. Kuttu coughs and looks away. So, um, where's the rest of the body? Kuttu looks at Balal, who looks at his feet. Uh, it's uh, gone, sir. So I'm supposed to give his mother some limbs, a shoulder, and I don't know what that is. How do we prove it's Almeida? Ranchagura speaks up. Well, if, he's, uh, if he was taken in, his prints will be on file. Detective Kasim shakes his head. I trust our fingerprint department less than I trust you. Where's the head? Uh, we threw it in the lake. I don't want to hear it. Get me the head. I don't care if you have to drain the whole stinking bearer. We need it tonight. Kotu picks up the phone in the office and gets Driver Mali out of bed. Kasim lumbers towards the lift. Uh, where are we going, detective? Asks Ranchagoda once they are out of earshot. You better put in for overtime, Puta. Ranchagoda pauses outside the lift, but does not go in. Kasim gets inside and holds it with his finger. What's the issue? Boss, first you say you are transferring away from the corpses. Now you want to put in overtime? We have our job to do. What's our job? We protect the innocent, says Detective Kasim. Uh, I thought we protect the powerful. Uh, do we need to discuss this now? Uh, Kasim takes his finger off the button which causes the doors to close. He curses and sticks his arm out to block the lift's jaws. Boss, I'm confused about another thing. Get in the lift now. Are we investigating this or are we covering this up? <laughs> Thank you. I mean, crucially, they're both investigating it and covering it up, which seems to be the best way to do any kind of business. <laughs> there's a decision in the book that I want to ask about that I think is part of the particular pleasure and kind of surprise of reading it, and it's the decision to make the whole thing happen in the second person. Uh, we're very much in Marley's head, his experience of the afterlife, um, his perspective, but uh, it's all delivered to you, the reader. Mm. That, again, I used the word audacious before, I'm going to use it again. I mean, you don't come across the second person very often, and it's incredibly effective and powerful. Was that there from the start, or was that something that came late? No, no, it wasn't at all. So every book I try and write in the third person. So in the initial draft of this was called Devil Dance, and it was a slasher horror set on a bus, and... The only thing that survived from that wreckage of a draft was the ghost of Mali Almeida, who was, um, yeah, he was a ghost on the bus. And I didn't know much about him, but when I came back to it, I thought, okay, I've got to write the book about this guy. And I did it in the first person then. And um, for some reason, it wasn't quite working. And um, then again, I just, yeah, I had to step back and think, okay, so what does a disembodied voice sound like? What does the invisible wall look like? Um, it was, uh, and... I finally figured that maybe if anything survives the death of your body, it's the voice in your head. And the voice in my head is in the second person. I don't know about everyone else's heads, uh, what, uh, but it seems like it's someone else speaking to me and saying, yeah, you should have worn a cleaner shirt today. And, uh, and, it's, um, and I just went with it. I think a lot of writing is, uh, you can rationalize it later, but you go on instinct. And yeah, because there are not, not a lot of examples. I mean, Bright Light's 
big city. Um, Mohsin Hamid wrote two of his novels in the second person. But it's a tough thing to pull off, even across a short story. But I think the proof was, uh, yeah, suddenly I had 20 pages. And also this, the second person narrating it is slightly different from the Mali Almeida who lived from 1950 to 1990 in the flashbacks. And you hear that in the audio book, which I, did, you know, I didn't meet Shivanta Vijay Singer before he recorded it, but um, he, he, he speaks in a different register. The narrator and the flashback, the Mali Almeida are slightly different. And I think um, he interrogates that. Who is the you telling the story? Is it, is it his conscience? Is it his soul over centuries? And he, you know, he, he discusses that, but it also brings up the question, what is the voice that whispers your thoughts? And I've often wondered that, especially when you're writing. Um, is, you think that you, the, your, all your thoughts originate from you, but many times you've done something or said something, you go, what was I thinking? Where did that come from? And I think, and Mali also questions, is there a spirit sitting on my shoulder telling me what to do and manipulating me? So I think, but all of that came later. I think the initial decision was, yeah, the voice in your head, it's in the second person, and that's how I'll tell the story. And it seemed to offer that detachment, but that engagement, and yeah, it seemed to work. That gap between the dead Mali and the living Mali is part of what the seven moons of the title are there to reconcile. Yes, there's administrative work to be done in the seven days after you die if you want to go into the light. But it's also uh, that kind of cliche of putting one's affairs in order, the mm. idea that you might need to do that after you've died, that you would be suffused with regrets or things that you wanted to fix, not just solving your own murder or uh, working out how to make sure that your profession as a war photographer has an impact after you die, but also your kind of personal relationships. And one of my absolute favourite things in this book is Marley's relationship with his boyfriend, Diddy, and his best friend, Jackie. And those, that triumvirate formed the, the kind of incredibly tender heart, I think, of this book. How important were those relationships to you in your conception beyond the ghost story in the kind of uh, the heart of what you wanted to do. Mm. So you're right, a lot of moving parts here. There's murder mystery, ghost story, political thriller, um, ghost philosophizing, and yeah, there's a love triangle as well there. And I think most editors would say there's too many plots here. There's, yeah, just do it about the LTT. I think there's enough to write the novels. Yeah. Um, I didn't show it to one until it was, it was a mess beyond repair, I think. Um, but... <laughs> Yes, this, this was just an explanation of... Um, because, okay, one of the edits I remember was, Marley's not very likable. And um, I'm not sure he's likable even in the final estimation, but because why is he... You know, I, I, I feel a real... And, you know, he was a nihilist and an atheist and, let's face it, quite self-centered and arrogant. And I think it's only... In, yeah, during COVID, we took this thing apart and we looked at those relationships of... Um, um, yeah, so he had, a, he had a boyfriend and a girlfriend, and also, and he treated both quite poorly, and uh, as well as his mother, and he had daddy issues, and I think we looked into deepening those relationships, and, I, and also, and this is the thing of writing it over a long period of time, those characters started speaking to me as well. I mean, people say I'm really unkind to Dee Dee, and I don't, I, I don't know if I am, uh, because it's all told through Marley's point of view, yeah. It's all Mali. He's the unkind person. I was just trying to uh, depict it honestly. You make Diddy very beautiful. So that's, you know, he is, yes. he's uh, fine. Yeah, you know. exactly. Uh, but I think, um, yeah, when we worked at that, at least even if Mali's not likable, you get an explanation of him. 
And without giving any spoilers, he does, over those seven moons, evolve, and um, he does do some selfless things which he couldn't do in life to, to help the ones he loved. So that was something that came much later, though. But you're right, I do think that is the emotional heart uh, of the story and the plot. Uh, part of it is to do with Marley's closeted sexuality, and that's kind of a, a key narrative engine and a key kind of motivating thing for him. You talked before about why someone might go off and take photos in war zones and not be settled or not be themselves or open to their loved ones or their family or whatever, and that, it seems to me, is a big part of it. How um, did you have reservations about writing a queer lead character for your book? So I didn't think of it then, Stuart, because I started it in 2013. I'm sure if I started it now, this would be something, because um, now the, the cultural appropriation argument is all around us. And yes, yeah, so can a, whatever I am, a, a cis-het normative, uh, cisgender het normative dude, uh, write from a LGBTQ character's point of view? I wasn't thinking this, uh, but I talked about Richard Disoisa before. Even though a lot of his CV and his biographies changed for Mali, this is the one detail that remains, because Richard also was a closeted gay man. But also, I was when researching war photographers in the Sri Lankan conflict and, and beyond, one thing you find, especially with this, and it's become a cliche of the Bang Bang Club and all that, that they, they're all dysfunctional individuals who only felt alive when they were in these danger zones, getting these shots, close-ups that they knew no one else could. So I think there was that element that he found out, found something, he, one thing he was really good at. When his dad told him he'd be good at nothing, he found this one thing. So I think it started with ego, but also he could express himself sexually, um, even though, you know, in 1989 or even today, in, even if you're in liberal Colombo, he couldn't express himself as a gay man, but in the war zone, uh, he, it was a free-for-all, and he... he um, uh, ate at that banquet quite, um, uh, yeah, he, and so I think, you know, he calls himself, uh, yeah, photographer, gambler, and slut is the third thing on his CV. Um, so this was, a, so it just seemed natural, I don't, and I suppose I could have rewritten him as a heterosexual character, but I don't think it would have worked for the engine of the plot, so I, it just felt natural, so I just kept, I, but I did make sure I, just, you know, sense checked it. I, well, I gave it to some of my younger friends who are gay, and these are the grinder generation, and a very different dynamic there. But I also gave it to contemporaries of Richard, who were, you know, boomers, if you like, who grew up in the 80s, amidst this, uh, this atmosphere. And um, I did, yeah, I did my homework and tried to depict it. And also we're talking about human relationships and, um, you know, Newsflash, heterosexual guys also cheat on their lovers. And so uh, I, I could draw from, from this. And um, yeah, but I probably would have given it a lot more thought if I started the book now. But at the time, it's yeah. By the time I handed it to the editor, the mess was with the second person. I was dreading that they'd say one thing, you've got to change the second person or something. But um, Natanya, bless her, um, took the mess and said, well, I think it's terrific. You just have to change the beginning, the middle, and the end, but otherwise I think we're great, yeah. And, uh, yeah. Good note, small yeah. note. Yeah. It, it, um, it strikes me that while we've been talking, I let you kind of rush past something that you said in passing that I'm sure there are people in the audience who are furious at me for not following up on, uh, which is in researching this book, you went and visited haunted houses. Um, 
I know every interview you've done about this book, certainly since you've won the book, uh, people want to know what your belief structure is about the afterlife, what you actually genuinely believe versus what was convenient for the purposes of telling the story. Is that something you feel you have an answer to or you're interested in, or are you much more interested in story than you are in your own beliefs? Yeah, that question has been put. My religious beliefs, my political beliefs, and I try and dodge that question every time I've I noticed. get it. I've noticed. That's why yes. I tried to come uh, sideways. Yeah. Um, but let's, let's talk about the haunted houses. Um, yeah. um, See, you dodged the haunted, yeah. haunted houses too, so I yeah. thought I'd give you both at once. Um, it's a choice. So I did spend a lot of time at the Borel Kanat, the cemetery. Cemeteries are wonderful places to, yeah, when you're stuck with a novel to walk around, and so I spent a lot of time there. I did do a little tour around, um, yeah, the plantations, the tsunami villages where there were ghost stories. Never saw a ghost, I have to say that. Um, and not sure I really wanted to, um, but what I was interested in is wherever there was trauma in, so wherever uh, a village was ravaged by the tsunami, you'd see apparitions climbing out of the ocean or wherever there was a village where um, young people went missing in the 80s or throughout history, you'd, you'd uh, figures in the jungle and all that. So, I mean, you can interpret it either way that these spirits are wandering out these places or that it, this is how we um, address that trauma and keep these stories alive. Um, so, I, um, yeah, I, I went to a clairvoyant who said, there's a lady standing behind you. I think this was her parlor trick. Um, she said, yeah, she's, 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 she's looking after you. She'll make sure that you finish the story. And yeah, so bless you, lady, whoever you were. Um, <laughs> But no, I, I, never, I never saw anything supernatural, but that doesn't mean they don't exist. I'm not, I'm not going to mess with things. So I, like I said, the seance was offered to me. And even at the cemetery, the cemetery keeper came and said, do you believe in this thing, sir? And I said, um, well, you know, I think there could exist to go. He goes, yes, yes, there are. Come at 11, 11.30 and I'll show you. Uh, I didn't go back at 11.30, <laughs> you know. No. Um, so uh, I think you can infer my beliefs and everything from the book. Um, I, um, I haven't seen a ghost, but I fear them. Let's put it that way. Yeah. The beliefs, I'm not sure what I can infer from the book, less about your political and your spiritual beliefs, but there are a lot of theories about the world. There are a lot of ghost philosophers in this book and living mm. and dead characters who have very strongly held beliefs about how things work. Uh, for example, a question about uh, whether there's a correlation or even a causation uh, between a population being circumcised and how warlike they are, for example. Um, yes. How much fun did you have with those kind of things in this book? Was that you just playing around with theories and throwing them out there? Was that you as a bowerbird collecting weird different belief things you came across? I think a lot of that, yeah, because um, that's the thing. Nobody knows anything. And so, therefore, you can try out different beliefs. And, and I think it was useful. I mean, there's a deeper question here, which is, I think, the central thing of the book is, how does Sri Lanka deal with its past? Um, do we bury it, forget about it, which seems to be the approach of most, or do we dig it up and scrutinize it and uh, try and make sense of it? And even Mali is conflicted there. He's got the two... Uh, I won't call them angels, an angel and a demon, but two characters who are guiding him. Um, one, Dr. Rani saying, well, your life's done, forget about it, walk into the light and uh, move to your next place. Whereas Sena, who's a revolutionary, says, no, that's exactly what they want you to do. You should go back and redress all the injustice that happened. And I think this is something that Sri Lanka grapples with as well. Um, so yeah, I did, and I don't know if 
when I started the book, what my opinion was, I think Mali comes to a conclusion uh, towards the end of the book. But yeah, I was interested in yeah these different theories, or what the light could represent. It, is it karma? Is it oblivion? Is it heaven and hell? Is it your your mum's birth canal and you're you're going walking into it? I've I've heard all the theories, and um, yeah, it was good to kind of put them all out there, or put them in different ghosts' mouths, and have them argue about it. I think what's interesting when you give it the overlay of the question of Sri Lanka as a nation is that if Dr. Rani is effectively the angel on Mali's shoulder and Sena is the devil on his shoulder, the devil is the one that's saying, don't let it rest. We have to interrogate the past. We have to, you know, it is that revolutionary impulse that, uh, that you're being lulled into a sense of security to be told you can forget this thing and move on. Mm. Um, and that seems counterintuitive, that somehow the more malevolent force is the one that doesn't want to let you rest. Well, one thing with Sena's character, again, without giving too much away, one thing that struck me researching this period is, and early on there's a helpful abbreviation chapter which uh, tells you who, uh, who the... I mean, it's pretty shallow. It just says... Oh, no, I've there got that are page no bookmarked for myself. It's incredible. Abbreviations, yeah. Um, and it just says, you know, there are no good guys. They're all different degrees of bad guys. And um, what I did notice was... It all starts with a worthy cause. Um, so there certainly was justification for young uh, Tamil, for Tamil youth in the 70s to, to take up arms. There was certainly justification for rural youth um, to question the government and um, stage that revolution and all of that. But all of these movements ended up becoming worse than the thing they were trying to destroy. And they, they ended up becoming fascist and ended up uh, turning on their own. And with Sena, that he, he starts off with this, uh, with this aim that, you know, karma is not going to solve things. There's definitely the courts in Sri Lanka. The detectives aren't going to solve murders, so we need to avenge things. But then how his character evolves. And I guess I wasn't thinking angel and demon, because Dr. Rani was also revolutionary in her, but it's a different approach. She sort of has made peace with it and decides that... Um, you can, you know, the old cliche of uh, change the system from within. Um, so I think I was more interested in where, where things originate and where they end up, because um, the current leadership of Sri Lanka, I will not, like Lord Baltimore, I, I will not mention their names, but um, <laughs> in the 80s, because people were saying, you know, aren't you worried about writing about this? But in the 80s, that faction were in the opposition, and they were campaigning for human rights, and uh, they were quote-unquote, the good guys at that stage. And uh, I think one of the characters makes a crack, you know, let them run the country and let's see what happens, um, appreciate comments. So I think maybe it came from, from that, rather than saying that all revolutionaries are demons, which is kind of what's being said now in Sri Lanka with the whole struggle, you know, we see that being demonized. That wasn't what I was trying to do, but I was just interested in how the worthy causes when you turn to violence how uh, it ends up uh, perverting the, the cause that you're trying to, trying to prove. It wasn't, as you say, a politically motivated book to begin with, but how dispiriting have the past, you know, have, as the period post the end of the 30-year war been in terms of hope and where you sit now with hope for change and meaningful change? So that is the thing. I mean, I alluded to it in the beginning where I said when I started, I was just disappointed that there was all this bickering. 
But then we've had so many false dawns. I've li I'm, we're living through one at the moment. Now uh, it's like, okay, the economic collapse is over. Now we're going to be unstoppable. There's still a lot of optimism. It's like following the cricket team. You know, we lose spectacularly. Then suddenly they beat Australia in a test match. And it's like, yeah, we're back. And we're going to win the World Cup. And then they lose to Namibia. It's, it's, this is the, you know, it's, it's no the coincidence that the cricketing metaphor was there in, in the first book. Um, yeah, it's been... For me personally, I mean, 2015, uh, there was again this hope there'll be a new government and a new system, and then that was ended by the Easter attacks. And again, the Easter attacks were 2019, not that long ago. A um, lot of narratives, a lot of investigation, a lot of conspiracy theories. And then we sort of move on to the next catastrophe, and we forget about that, even though now there is some murmurings for accountability for that horrific incident. But I think, um, yeah, we, 10 years later, we should have been, people, I mean, ele come election time, they always say, we're going to be the next Singapore, we're going to be the next Singapore. That's, and 10 years later, we're bankrupt. And, you know, I'd settle for being the next Bangladesh because they're doing pretty well <laughs> with the staving off e economic catastrophe. But yeah, it's been quite dispiriting. And um, one thing, I mean, I, when I, people ask me what Sri Lanka like now, uh, the most honest answer I can give is it's better than it was uh, 10 months ago. Um, you know, there's, the petrol queues have stopped. Uh, there's still water in the taps. Um, the lights stay on most of the time. Um, and the cricket team won a match the other day. And uh, that's, but also what I do say is um, it's a fantastic place for writing novels because uh, there's plenty of dystopia to draw on, especially if you're writing absurdist novels about. But yeah, it has been a dispiriting time, but there's, you know, there's a, I, I, lately I saw there's a thing called the Centenary Movement, which is by a bunch of millennials who, um, and they're well represented across, you know, races and genders, unlike the Parliament of Sri Lanka. And their vision is by 2048, we will be a, a proper developed nation. That's 100 years of independence. So it's a good enough deadline. I am, I'm all about, the, yeah, it's a 25-year deadline. I remember we wanted to be the best test-playing nation by 2000 after we won the 96 World Cup. I think that was too short a deadline. Um, so there, there is this optimism that, yeah, in 20, yeah by 2048, we'll be this thing. And um, That's a novelist's um, attitude to deadlines right there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Give it a bit more time, let the, let the rope out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's been... Um, but let's see. People ask me if I still have hope. Um, I do, but I've also lived in Sri Lanka for so long and had uh, these moments of optimism and then, yeah, seen the cricket team bundled out for 70 against... Uh, yeah. Um, so let's see, let's see. But yeah, we're now in this cycle of we think, okay, things are getting better. We've got a chunk of change from the IMF and now we're going to rebuild the country. So, but... Yeah, it's been, we shouldn't be here now. And by all accounts, we sh yeah. it's, it's all our fault. And that's the other thing. They, they look at who to blame for this. Do we blame the colonizers? Or um, this is the other thing. It's all a foreign conspiracy. We hear all of that. But I think the demons in the book squarely say, yeah, we messed it up all by ourselves. Uh, the decision to have Mali be a war photographer seems to me in part to be about that idea of the responsibility to bear witness. Do you think, as a novelist, you have a responsibility? Um, well, I'll tell you about the photography bit first. Um, one thing that really puzzled me is, um, because also the war is fading from memory, I mean, faded from world memory, but even we don't discuss it, especially the younger generation who come to book signings say, um, 
you know, I was born in the 90s. I, I'm aware of this war, but my parents never talk about it. We're not taught about it in schools. And I, one thing I noticed every July, so um, 1983, the, the pogroms against the Tamil people um, all around the island, which, you know, most historians uh, mark as the start of the whole mess. Um, every July, and, you know, since it's happened, you know, hundreds of thousands of Tamils left the country, and uh, there's no official death count of how many houses were burned, how many people were killed. But uh, the internet remembers, and every July we talk about Black July on the internet, but it's the same three photographs I see, the same three photographs recycled. And I've talked to journalists who are on the ground, and I wonder, I wondered, uh, did no one have cameras those days? I mean, that's the thing about the last uh, 2022 Aragalia, everyone had cameras, so I don't think... Uh, until they switch off the internet. I think we, that's well documented. But it, it puzzled me that even about Sri Lanka's war, not too many, I, I see the same photographs recycled. So, and you know, like the kids say, if uh, photos or it didn't happen, and that seems to be, and so that's where it started from, the idea that maybe there is this photographer who had uh, taken all these, uh, these photographs from that period and is hidden under his bed. But also, yeah, so Mali believes he was, he was there to bear witness and I saw these things and the world should see them. Um, I, didn't, I don't have those lofty goals when I'm writing novels. Um, and I'm, yeah, people ask me, are you going to write about 2022? Um, I'm still in 89. I wrote about the 96 World Cup in the 89 uh, Bichonais, so it'll be probably 2048 by the time I bear witness to this time. Uh, when we're a developing nation, yeah, uh, from Port City, perhaps. Um, um, so I don't, but I think, you know, one thing that I impressed upon me during COVID was how non-essential writers are, and which is fine, you know, they're much more essential people in society, but I think maybe one place we can be useful is, yes, because um, 89 is well-documented, even if you go as far as Wikipedia, list of assassinations, uh, in the 80s, list is uh, literally as long as my arm. Um, but, you know, there's no, there's a lot of conflicting narratives, even about the Easter attacks, uh, who was behind it, what it achieved, and so on. So maybe this is where the fiction writer can come in, and we can um, hide behind these strange characters and at least put forward these different theories of why things happen. So, yeah, if that's bearing witness, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I mean, that's one of the great things. So, like, my audience has expanded beyond middle-aged men who are into cricket. And these young people, and I tell them, um, yeah, the true story is far more gruesome than anything in there. But, yeah, you should read about it and, and talk about it. And um, Because, um, yeah, burying our past hasn't seemed to work. So um, hopefully the next generation will learn from it. Mm. We have a question waiting here. So I was uh, hoping that you might talk about your influences as a writer. Midnight's Children, um, you know, it's a cliche to say, but for South Asian writers. And when I was starting to write here in the 90s, um, you know, Salman Rushdie certainly, uh, Michael Ondaatje won the Booker Prize. Um, I mean, English Patient wasn't about uh, Sri Lanka, but he'd written Running in the Family and extensively about it. And Ramesh Gunasekar. And so we had a lot of... Uh, Sri Lankan writers in the 90s, but I think, yeah, Salman Rushdie in particular, uh, Arundhati Roy later, um, Rohitan Mystery. Uh, but I'd like to flag one name who, um, maybe not as well known as all, all of these names, is Karl Muller. 
Carl Muller was a Sri Lankan, um, yeah, burger writer who um, published extensively in India, but I don't think beyond that. But he, he wrote this saga about, so the burger people are the descendants of the Dutch, the Portuguese, the, the you know, quite a peaceful minority, the only one not to ask for separatist movement, I think, but uh, they're, they're, they're stereotyped as eating, drinking people, you know, happy gola. And so Karl Muller wrote this story about this burger family who were, yeah, getting drunk, getting into fights and sleeping with each other's spouses. And, um, but it was written in a very Sri Lankan voice. And I remember, and same thing with Salman Rushdie, I think it gave us permission to, we didn't have to sound like, like our English teachers told us that we had to sound like an Englishman who lived 200, you know, 100 years ago. And that was how English writing, fiction writing was done. So I think those were certainly influences. Um, but I think more directly with this, um, and I've spoken a lot about Uncle Kurt, uh, Kurt Monigat, um, uh, George Saunders, Douglas Adams, Margaret Atwood, you know, writers are writing pretty bleak stories, but they're all often hilarious and entertaining. And uh, so I took a lot from that. But um, yeah, certainly Salman Rushdie. Was the timing for Lincoln in the Bardo, uh, you must have been deep in the writing of this book when Lincoln in the Bardo came out. Was it a, a useful thing or a, a kind of... Uh, did you just say, oh, shit, someone else is uh, in the world of the afterlife? Exactly that. It yeah. was 2017. <laughs> and um, I, you know, I hadn't, the previous title was Chats with the Dead. So I was struggling with Chats with the Dead. And suddenly, a talking ghost book wins the booker. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, now everyone's going to say, yeah, another talking ghost book. Um, and so, yeah, I was demoralized for, yeah, a week or two. But then I got the book. And, of course, it's a masterpiece. And I, I read it. And, and one thing I... Um, I was inspired by it, but I also realized it's very different from, uh, from mine. I mean, it's basically attributed dialogue all the way through. And, um, and yeah, so it ended up, it demoralized me at first, but then it ended up inspiring me. I read a lot more of George Saunders' work, and um, obviously there's room for two talking ghost bookers in the world. So, yeah. <laughs> I, I was so sad for you when you had to shelve your book about the boy wizard. Uh, uh -huh. that, you know, that was more disappointing. <laughs> I think you would have done very well. Um, Mali was not a very likable person. Um, you seem very funny and likable. Um, <laughs> Mali was gay, and um, you've already said that you're not much to the disappointment of the gay man in this room. <laughs> How much of yourself do you identify the main character or in, even imbue into Mali? So for, so for me, the... Um the appeal of fiction writing is to be able to write from the point of view of characters unlike yourself. Um, so the first book, um, W.G. Karunasena, the narrator, um, you know, he was 64, I think I was 32 when I was writing it, and you know, an uncle from a very diff different generation, very different attitudes to, to mine, and it was fun inhabiting that character and writing from that point of view. And Mali Almeida, I guess he's closer to my age, though he comes from, you know, a different generation, or at least 10 years earlier. Um, I guess um, he's, I, I don't see a lot of myself in him, really. Um, but I do think um, maybe he's a, a braver, a more I idealistic, uh, less cynical version of me. If, if it, uh, uh, because um, he wanted to go out and put himself at risk and um, 
uh, make a difference. And you know, I'm quite clearly a coward. I, I yes, so uh, who who writes like he, during the time when it was happening, he was going to these dangerous places. Whereas I sit 30 years later and write a novel about it. So um, so I don't know. I, I I think you know, there's bits of yourself in each character. Even the the cops and the body disposers, I can see the attitude to work mirroring mine. But um, <laughs> yeah, I. Um, I don't know. I, I don't think much, but who knows. Do you find Mali likable? I would like to have a beer with W.G. Karunasen, or Arak, probably, and watch a cricket match. I think W.G. Karunasen, I missed him when I'd finished writing. Mali, not so much. I, th I don't know if I'd want to hang out with him. He'd be insufferable and obnoxious. Not my... Yeah. I, I can't see myself, but I was... Obviously, he's... Compelling to me and all of that, but I think I'd rather hang out with WG and drink Arak than or Jackie. Than, or Jackie. Jackie yeah, Jackie's lovely. Yeah, yeah, we all like Jackie. That's good. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, consensus there. Uh, Shahaz, thanks for your book. Uh, you come from a very religious island, I suppose. No, uh, about the Buddhism. So, because your book has a very intense religious aspect, how were you criticized or not by religious people in your island? So, how? Uh, because no, this is a political aspect. But I'd like to know about how religious people are, you know, talking about your book. Yeah, um, thank you. Um, religious people, um, yeah. This is, a, this is another loaded grenade thrown at me. Um, <laughs> you, uh, just so, to be clear, you've already put someone off dying and alienated <laughs> the queer community of Sydney. <laughs> so, so go for your life, really. It's, it's downhill from here. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the reading of the reincarnation, I mean, I mean, I'm not sure, I thought I left it pretty ambiguous what the light represents and what the river represents and all of that. So who knows where the next place is. Um, in Sri Lanka, the, the, the reaction generally, um, well, when, when the Booker win happened, uh, no one had read the book because you couldn't get books in Sri Lanka at that time. You couldn't get petrol. And... Um, <laughs> We've established the books are non-essential, but obviously they've read it since then, and there's been, you know, a lot of, and yeah, the beginning being difficult, I grappled with the editor on that. I said, no, it's got to be confusing. It can't, you know, that's the, you've got to be in his mind. Um, there, there's always a few trolls, but more political trolls, more saying, why are you depicting the island in this way as if I made it all up? Um, uh, why not? And I've written tourist brochures in another lifetime, so I've, I've peddled both sides of the street. But um, I think it's, there is really a hodgepodge of religious and philosophical beliefs in there. There is, uh, and I don't know if I commit to one. So if anything, I offend all religions equally, and therefore no one takes specific offense. But now I'm worried by this satanic verses reference. And, uh, so um, shall we move on to cricket now? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, because that never got anyone in trouble. <laughs> yeah. um, there are three fabulous ghosts in the book who are all in Hawaiian shirts who are tourists who are firmly of the belief that uh, you see a better version of a country in people's dreams than the one that you see in reality. So maybe, maybe that's what you're doing here. This is your tourism statement, is dream about Sri Lanka rather than uh, actually go... Who knows? Tourism, that, yeah. Would tourism? you want to tour that uh, afterlife? Um, no, honestly, apart from the smell of the strawberry fields, none of it really is where I yeah. want to go. 
I just want to know, like, in your writing process, what's the secret or the element that you have in sort of navigating, I guess, the complex and sensitive topics? And how do you create such complex characters that reveal, like, collective trauma and, like, human vulnerability? Um, <laughs> I, I wake up very early. Uh, before um, I wake up at 4 a.m. and I'm at my desk every day. Um, and... Um, I really don't know, but I do it for long enough because this book, like I said, it was a slash a horror, uh, horror book. Um, and that draft took three years. And the thing is, um, you know, and I, I don't want to demoralize you, but, uh, you know, it takes just as long to write a terrible book as it does to write a decent one. And um, this is the reality. And I think the difference between writers and civilians is that you write a terrible book and most reasonable people will do, go on to something, a better use of their time. But uh, I, I went back to that man, and you keep going back to the manuscript and trying to pull things out of it. So, um, but like I said before, the characters start talking to you if you're at it every morning, or maybe the spirits start talking to you. Um, so yeah, it's, it's done at a really instinctual level. So I don't sit there thinking, OK, I want to create a complex character or talk about, I never said I want to talk about LGBTQ issues and, and all of that, but the characters end up uh, telling you who they are and where they should be and, and so on. But yeah, just wake up every morning, get, get good sleep and drink lots of water. That's, that's the best I got to do. And read a lot of the great Sri Lankan books of which there are plenty. Yeah, I, I can give you a reading list. Yeah. I like that the reading list is second to hydration. Yes, there's a, yes. There's a hierarchy. We have time for one more question. Hi, Shahan. What are your hopes and dreams for your book after you are gone? That it's still in print? That, you know, that's, that's the hope of everyone. I'm, I'm a librarian before. by profession, and that's an excellent answer. There, there's a wonderful kind of recurring refrain in the book that I hope I'm not giving away, uh, that when it reflects on the nature of life, it says that the best thing that you can say about life is it's not nothing. Um, uh, this book is not nothing. It is something significant on many different registers in many different ways. But most of all, I'd like you to join me in thanking the extraordinary Jahan Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.